Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauk. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the US, Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Sana Javeri Kadri. Sana is the founder and CEO of Diaspora Co., an online marketplace for specialty foods. Sana began Diaspora, a company which has upended the supply chain of the centuries-old spice trade, at the wise and energetic age of 23, just a few years and a pandemic ago in 2017. She opened for business after months of sourcing work and research with just one spice, turmeric. Diaspora sources direct from farmers and sells direct to consumers in order to pay farmers on average six times the commodity price for spices. The company has grown exponentially in the past five or so years, and in 2022, they completed a first round of investor funding. Sana is also a photographer and writer. Prior to creating Diaspora, she worked in marketing, she was a student farmer, and her passion for both visual and written storytelling is evident in Diaspora's bold, compelling communications. Sana, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you. Okay. Edible communities and edible publications around North America are micro-focused on the local food systems and economies in their regions. And yet, likely, many or most recipes this diverse collection of magazines features have some spices or seasonings that just can't be sourced locally. Flavor is international. You split your time between California and Mumbai, and you worked at a California grocer when you got the idea for Diaspora. Can you talk a little bit about the average eater's disconnection from spice and how that might have affected your decision to start the company? Yeah, I think that that's exactly it that I I was seeing at Byrate, this wonderful grocery store in San Francisco that we were sourcing, we had the privilege really of sourcing oranges and tomatoes and berries from some of the most beautiful farmers across California. But then the spice aisle was a complete afterthought. And what it really felt is that for the quality of this produce, home cooks and chefs deserve better spices and better source spices. And similar to coffee or chocolate, um, things that simply can't grow here in the United States or within our local community, how do we source those things to the same, if not greater, value system and equity proposition as, you know, a Masumoto peach or a full belly farm tomato. And that that was really the motto. It was let's saying, can I find farmers who are growing beautiful spices, like really prioritizing deliciousness and aroma and quality and get that to customers so that when they're buying their CSAs, when they're when they're putting so much heart into how they cook, they're not using spices that are five to seven years old and super dusty, um, because that's the market as it currently exists. The, the current industry is stale, outdated spices where the customers don't get anything and farmers don't make money. So that that was the initial impetus, really. And I know you've drawn connections before to single origin chocolate and coffee. I imagine that consumers might not even really know that a commodity spice, you know, maybe they might have thought it didn't come from all the same farm, but it might not even come from the same country. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I started researching turmeric, I was realizing that turmeric from Vietnam, India, Laos, um, the Philippines were all kind of getting 
cut open by farmers. And then um, if they matched a certain shade of orange, they would get sorted by color. And so if as long as you were buying, you know, a dark orange turmeric, that could have a blend from four different countries. Um, and that meant that if you wanted to trace oh, did one of these origins maybe have lead contamination? There's no way to trace that. If you wanted to trace, oh, did, did one of these origins maybe have toxic mold? Um, no way to trace that. And I think the single origin coffee and chocolate movement was really born from a dedication to quality and flavor and saying, if you're getting it from one place, one, you can fully trace where your cup of coffee came from. Um, and, and that traceability makes it unique and more delicious. And the same, I wouldn't say the origin and like the intense estate or farm specificity for a spice matters as much as um, knowing what seed variety it is, which sounds so obvious that like, oh, of course I know I'm growing XYZ seed, but in the turmeric industry or the pepper industry, so for pepper, they differentiate pepper for customers by size. And you've been like, because consumers have kind of been lied to and told the bigger the peppercorn, the more delicious, which is like, proof that men were in charge um but really uh the, <laughs> the, the 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 thing here is that there are over 200 varieties of peppercorn um and they have nothing to do with the size the size of whether a berry is small or big is usually whether it was given adequate water or nutrition whether it was like overfed when it was a young mm. plant um so what we want is to be looking at which variety has more fruity notes? Which variety is more spicy? And then let's use those different varieties for different cooking applications. So there's a lot that the customer, I feel like, has been robbed off in terms of, mm. you know, how they can cook with with diverse flavors of one spice. Like there's cinnamons that are more spicy versus more sweet. And we as customers should have the choice to say, I want to use the sweet cinnamon today versus the spicy one. And just as a kind of total aside, but does color connect to flavor with turmeric? Like, no. Okay. Zero <laughs> percent. It has no size and color says so little about the flavor and the aroma of a spice. And yet, and, and I think what that tells you is, well, why? Who decided that? And it was because the spice trade as we know it today was set up by the colonizers. The British get a lot of the blame, rightfully so, but like, so should the Portuguese, so should the Dutch, so should the French. Um, and these were all, you know, European colonizers that were coming usually to parts of Asia, um, looking for spices with very little understanding of what they were. The reason um, that chilies were, are also called peppers in America is because they thought it was pepper. They couldn't tell the difference between like little black berries and large red chilies. And so they built it based on their assumptions. And then 250 years later, the industry didn't change to correct for those assumptions. And so a lot of the work that I feel like diaspora is really keen on doing beyond correcting for the assumptions is also giving credit to actually indigenous people, tribal communities, um, people who are actually have been growing this spice for hundreds of years, they know best what makes a spice delicious and how to grow it for maximum quality. So instead of listening to some trader who sits in some office somewhere, let's listen to them. Mm -hmm. So I've read that 
thinking back to the, the early days of the spice trade, traders kept their sources secret, maybe even inventing imagined plant or animal origins or unfamiliar flavorings so that their exclusive access wouldn't be disrupted. And Diaspora is flipping that narrative completely. completely. Yeah, by not only offering your transparency, but also the way that you share photos and stories from the farms and farmers. So was storytelling always part of your business plan? Always. I think there was this feeling to me that, you know, why do we associate chocolate with Belgium? One, because Belgium's had a lot of money, but also because of the level of like excitement and delight and storytelling over hundreds of years that Belgian culture has kind of invested in, in telling that story for themselves. And I think what colonialism robbed us of is the ability to tell our own stories. And so the most important part was to say, I'm, I, Sana Javeri Gadri, off South Bombay, you know, rather privileged origins. This is not even about my story. I am the translator, and it's, it's a privilege to be the translator. Um, so for me, it's how do we tell, you know, this incredible saffron farmer in Kashmir story in all of its complexity and all of its depth? Because that's that emotional connection is what will make Kashmiri saffron famous for the next generation is knowing, you know, who grew it, why they grew it, what they make with it, um, what they think is most delicious, you know? So that's always been the work is can we make these stories really emotional and delicious and in that way connect our consumer more deeply to where their spices are coming from? Yeah, which is a great segue into what I was just thinking about, about your new guide to the city of Mumbai that yeah. just came out um, to your newsletter subscribers. It was exciting to see and read about your favorite places and those of your contributors. And I've been thinking a lot about travel and connection as I've been preparing for our chat and how travel can both connect us to communities outside our own and perhaps put us in a position of opposition socially, politically, or economically. Travel is a huge part of your work in this business. And I'm wondering if it's a part that feeds you personally, and if you have thoughts about those tensions that arrive for those of us with the privilege to travel for the enjoyment of it. Yeah, so actually, I'm going to read you a quote that I found um, on the great interwebs a little while ago, and it says, a tourism economy is a holdover from a colonial economy. It doesn't generate culture as it doesn't prioritize its residents over its visitors. A cultural economy, however, has the benefit of the added benefit of driving tourism capital. And I think that's what I think about all the time is so much of tourism, like colonialism, can be extractive and can be about, you know, exploiting places for the cultural capital and the social capital that we can get from it. Visit For Americans visiting Hawaii um, is off, often feels that way. It's extremely extractive from the land. Um, whereas I think there's this form of, you know, visiting a place deeply invested in the people and thinking about how do I um, integrate myself with the culture and, and come in with openness and curiosity and actually contribute to the culture. And I think that's the kind of tourism and visiting that we're trying to encourage. For me, even as, as somebody who, who's sourcing for several months of the year, I'm so keenly aware what a privilege it is to be able to go on sourcing trips and essentially like parachute into our farm partners' lives for three days with a lot of capital, a lot of power in my hands because I hold the money, I hold access to their market, um, and I have to really be gentle with that because and and be aware of that privilege and say, 
actually, how can I shift that? How can I hand over some of the capital and power and privilege to them? Um, Sometimes that's meant things like saying, hey, a spice is not selling really well, but we really want to sell it better. What are you guys' ideas? You know, if, if you were in charge and then sometimes that's like actually taking our farm partners and putting that them in front of our customers and saying, you talk to them. Like, let's do Saffron School where we you educate your customer that we're just the intermediary for about this product. Um, and I think the Mumbai Guide was me really saying that there's a lot of stereotyping and reduction of what visiting India can be. It's like, oh, I want to take a photo with an elephant. Ooh, want to take a photo with a snake. Um, like, want to visit a castle. Um, and it's, it's so deeply removed from how... India eats and exists, modern India eats and exists in the day to day. Um, that for me, I, what I wanted to get people excited about is visiting the very living, breathing, everyday city. Um, that is magical and that really deserves that level of attention. Awesome. Well, and thinking about travel a little bit more, there's a beautiful map on the Diaspora website, a map which you mention in your company's impact report is a geographical simplification of lived experience. Nonetheless, it feels relevant and helpful because it's hard for a lot of us to imagine that just the plain old spatial relationships between places. The map shows the location of the farms for spices you offer. And if you click on the spice, you can read a bit more about uh, the farm where the spice grew. And you grew up in Mumbai on the west coast of India, but the spices are from throughout India as well as nearby countries. I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of scale when it comes to <laughs> how much travel is involved in your sourcing work and maybe even how language factors into your travel and your work. There's over 2,000 languages in South Asia. Um, I speak three. Um, so <laughs> I don't speak very many, you know? Um, and so one of our favorite places to source from and it feels such an honor to source is from Manipur which is on the Burmese border so I'm on the west coast um, and Manipur is the easternmost tip of the arm of northeast India Um, it takes like over a full day to get there even with you know modern technologies like flights like I'm taking three flights and then driving a long long way and then I'm making it to a farm. So imagine how, how long that spice then has to travel to make it back um, to us and to the, our consumers in the U.S. Um, so just, just from Mumbai to Manipur is over a full day. Getting from the U.S. to Manipur is like days. Um, we also source from Kashmir, which as an Indian and as, you know, an Indian who essentially is, is in a lot of ways responsible for the oppression and the occupation of Kashmir. Um, that's a complicated dynamic right there, you know, because I think, um, I've, I think what we just wanted to do is really honor what our farm partners experience is, um, and where, how they identify and they identify as being from Kashmir. And if anything qualified with Indian administered Kashmir, not Kashmir, a state in India, which is tricky to say to often an, an audience that doesn't agree with that. And it's like, Kashmir is part of India. Um, there, there's a lot of kind of complexity there. So I think we, we really had to default to, we will market and storytell um, the way that our farm partners want us to, not the way that is most digestible for you know, our audience. And then that's an important distinction. A lot of education goes into that. 
and similarly with Manipur, we the way that we talk about it is we highlight the tribe that we source from more than we highlight um, the region because this is a nomadic tribe that actually spans multiple states. So they don't actually, you know, in me actually saying that we source from Manipur, I'm automatically doing them a disservice because they want to say, you source from the Tankul tribe, mm. which is not, um, doesn't live within the India's state borders at all. Um, so yeah, lots, lots of like complicated, nuanced conversations like that. And I think that's important to also complicate how we see the subcontinent and how we disentangle from language that really are leftovers from colonialism. You know, they're not, they're not ways of describing states and places that um are rooted in south asian you know indigenous knowledge yeah no i think that that complexity is welcome for sure i've been thinking a lot about big picture versus small moments or experiences with respect to your business the orchestration of equitably moving spices around the world is huge and yet a tiny amount of spice has an outsized effect on the experience of a meal maybe just yeah. a pinch in some cases, right? Yeah, that's so cool. I love that you've created something that on the one hand has all this complexity, working to do things right, improving what you can in the world, making change. And on the other hand, comes down to a simple act of adding flavor to a meal. Now, was your project about pleasure and savoring from the start? It was about both from the start. You know, I think it was a. It, on one hand, I was a burnt line cook turned dedicated home cook. Um, and without a doubt, cooking is my favorite thing in the world to do always has been. And it was about saying, if I'm going to cook three meals a day, I want them to be joyful and I want them to be delicious and have the flavors of home and flavors of nostalgia and belonging. But on the other hand, um, my family motto um, in like full earnestness is how can we be of service? That's how we were raised and what our parents really pushed is you have a lot of privilege. How are you going to be of service? Um, so, so much of my like education was, was learning and saying, okay, can I use that to build a career around like being of service? Like how, how can I be of service? And um, the more I learned about the vast global spice supply chain, the more it felt like the best way to be of service to our farm partners was to actually take control of that supply chain and say, let's rebuild it. Let's build it our way. Um, so I think in the day to day, what keeps us pushing in this industry of essentially artisanally warehousing products from one end of the world to the other um, is my breakfast was delicious this morning and my lunch will be too. And that's because of the spices that we source and, and the chai that we blend. Um, but big picture, what keeps us working so hard. It's knowing that we have a very big mission of making supply chain sexy again. Awesome. And what do you like to cook? Oh, so much. Do your favorite meals change based on where you are? Honestly, my favorite meals are whatever Asha puts onto the Diaspora Co. recipe section. I exclusively grocery shop off of the Diaspora Co. website um, because she puts up, you know, we, we ha usually have two to three new recipes per month. Um, and they're from a mix of contributors and recipes she comes up with. Some of them are she takes my family recipes and tests them and rejigs them. So it's really this like veggie spice forward mix off um Italian, Korean, Indian, California. Like those are our four favorite cuisines as a company, I would say. Cool. Is there a dish that you've done recently that you want to mention? 
Oh, um, yes. Uh, I think that the, the one that I have sort of obsessively been doing is biryani. Um, and it's it used to be this daunting, intimidating thing, but um, we spent all fall working on essentially a master guide where we have one biryani masala um, that was very hard to take all these regional variations of biryani, which is in this aromatic, really hefty rice dish that um, is made completely differently in Hyderabad, where it originates, made very differently in Kerala in the south of India, and often with seafood. Um, so how do you use one blend to make all of these different variations? So we spent the fall testing absurd amounts of biryani um, to say one blend, five variations, Tamil lamb, Malabari shrimp, Hyderabadi chicken, um, Kashmiri veggie. Um, and I think it, it like unlocked something in me where I realized that once you have the, the like intuition down, it's so easy and it delivers so much impact when you are unveiling this like steaming aromatic pot of like really rich delicious rice um with meat or veggies in it so that's been my party trek for the past couple of months yeah i think spice blends are kind of like sauces in that way you know they can be that sort of like unlocking eureka moment for people when they start to use them that maybe creates this this uh, sense of freedom like oh maybe if i just saute an onion and i look in my fridge i can actually make something have you had that kind of response from your consumers that's exactly it there's been this like delight and like oh wow i feel so empowered to make these things now but i think that you know when we think about the spice industry at large um blends have usually been like a aspirational thing that then set people up for disappointment where what you're sold on is I'll buy this blend and it'll unlock this whole cuisine for me and i'll buy this blend and make my life so easy and then by the time you actually get around to opening the blend, you're like, wait, it doesn't smell like much. Like, is it really going to do something for me? Um, or, you know, five different blends all taste like subtle variations of the other. Um, so I think that's been a big one. Whereas what we wanted to make sure we were doing is you open up this blend that you bought and you spent money on because it was hopeful and exciting and opening up the door actually delights. And you're, and you very much are like, Wow. I can I can accomplish a whole new thing now. It makes me think about just thinking about the pandemic and smelling and not being able to smell. And um, you know, I know that, for instance, scented candles were a big selling item during the pandemic because people just wanted to be able to sell something. Did you notice that, like, your more fragrant, aromatic things that people had stronger reaction to those when, like, smelling was kind of in jeopardy? <laughs> I had COVID three times and I lost my sense of smell twice, and it was really challenging. And I really had to be like, I want, I want some kind of scent. Anything will do. Um, and at some point I reverted to just chili powder because mm -hmm. it would knock me and make me sneeze and I would feel something. Um, but I think, you know, we grew so much during the pandemic, not just because people wanted to smell something, I think because people wanted to like feel connected to flavor in a way that otherwise we felt so isolated at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was really beautiful to be able to ship, you know, little pink boxes to people that gave them a sense of belonging and connection and delight. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to grow into out of the pandemic is realizing that the pandemic is winding down, but we're still wanting those feelings just in different places. We now want those in restaurants. We now like mm -hmm. want that um, when we go out. So how can we supply the little pink box version of delight in more places? 
And what are the kinds of questions that consumers should be asking about the spices that they put in their pantry? Oof. Um, I think the biggest one is how old is it? Like mm. most 99% of the spices that you're buying at the grocery store don't have a harvest date or a best buy date. Um, and that's atrocious because often they're anywhere from like three to seven years old, um, which means they're just dust. Um, and I think I'm, I'm by no means, you know, I don't think the the responsibility to better an industry should fall on the consumer that should fall on industry. And I'm very clear about that. Um, but I think that consumers do have power to demand better of the industry, not, not vote with their wallets to actually say, we will not be, you know, to, to question and say, until you have a harvest date, I'm not interested. Or, mm. um, and, and companies usually change tune very quickly when consumers start demanding differently. Um, so I, I think of it more as like, it's not your consumer responsibility. It's a little bit more of reframing as your civic responsibility of saying, there should be um, more regulation around lead content in, in mm -hmm. spices. That's something that the consumer deserves. Um, and I think that's what, you know, the tiny guys like us are fighting for is saying, um, we will always give you the harvest and mill date. We will always give you lab tests um, and we'll really set the bar for what, what you deserve as, as the customer. Have you seen any movement in the direction of testing with the big guys now? There's a lot of great, like there's a lot of like, you know, greenwashing and marketing washing where like they'll see us using sexy words and be like, oh, we can use those words too. <laughs> sure. We have single origin too. It just came from a whole country. Um, it's not the same yeah. thing, sweetie. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of like chain tweaking labels and making like, you know, lipstick on a pig changes, um, but not systemic supply chain mm -hmm. um, changes that matter. And I think that just emboldens us to say, okay, well, we're going to become the big kids. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then they won't have a choice. Well, I mean, for those of us who can, so, you know, thoughtfully stock our pantries, I think one of the pleasures is it's, it's kind of, and again, thinking back to coffee and chocolate, like the most expensive spice is probably, you know, with a few exceptions, maybe saffron or something is not that much more expensive than no. the least expensive. So you can, you can make yeah. the good choices pretty easily if you're yeah. willing to wait for the mail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know, the, the other thing is like the, the $15 jar compared to the $3 jar um, is often three times as potent and you mm. need to use a third of what you usually would. Um, so we've, we've had that math from a lot of chefs where they come to us saying, oh, I used, you know, your turmeric in a recipe that called for one tablespoon when I actually needed a third of a tablespoon, like I needed mm. a teaspoon. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to be said there too. According to your website, Diaspora pays as much as six times the commodity price to farmers. Can you talk a bit about the economics of that model and what it means for consumers as well as the farms that you work with? Yeah, so it is it's actually not even up to six times. It can be up to 10x the, the commodity price. But our according to our 2021 impact report, which we put out a few months ago, the number for 2021 was 4x the commodity price. And that was to do with some of the inflation that we were seeing. So it's like tracked against the commodity price, right? So if commodity price rises, um, then our X multiple dwindles. But if commodity price drops, that grows. So um the biggest one is we set prices with our farm partners. So we are engaging in conversation with them and saying, hey, 
what do you need? What do you need to pay your labor bill? What do you need to be able to not have to borrow money to irrigate? Um, what do you need so that you can actually set crop aside for seed saving rather than have to like sell everything now and then be stuck when you need seed next harvest season? Um, so those are real regular conversations that are being had in price setting. Um, I think what that has allowed us to do is then we're setting our retail prices on top of whatever they need, simple, um, and building up the rest of our margins on top of what they need. And and that sounds so basic. And I think it's because we came into this industry not knowing anything. So we're like, that's how we'll do it. Um, but that's not how it's done at all. You know, in the larger industry, you just, you, the, the, you're saying, I want to hit this retail price in the grocery store and then everything else gets squished below that. And the farmer usually gets the shortest end of that bargaining stick. Um, so that's how we're trying to upend it. Um, and, and that also shifts and changes. And I think last year for the first year, we gave 50K in grants to our farm partners um, to invest in essentially expanding their processing and like how they can scale. Um, and that was just on top off, you know, whatever we're giving them as their prices. Mm -hmm. And how do you measure success with a farm that you're working with? I mean, I think one is sustainability. Can mm -hmm. they continue to do this work happily, profitably for years and if not generations to come? Can they afford to, you know, give their kids access to opportunities that they didn't have? And that might, quite frankly, mean that their kids leave the farm and never come back. And that is okay, right? But they have to be empowered to do that. And what we're actually finding, the really beautiful thing that we're finding, is that often when the kids are given the education and given the choice and shown that this can be a profitable, sustainable business model, they want to come back to the farm. They're mm -hmm. really excited by coming back to the farm because they realize what a special thing their parents are doing is. Um, we've had three or four instances now of the kids coming off, you know, adult, young adult age and um, going away to get an education um, and coming right back and saying, mm -hmm. we'll build this with our, with our families, um, which, which is a huge sign of success, right? That, yeah. That's the best sign. Um, yeah. And then I think the other one is um, our farm partners getting ambitious to do other things and, Part of it is also saying that at some point, success is our farm partners not needing us. Mm. Um, and that's that's a tricky one, right, to, to speak off. But if our someday um, our farm partners are able to access market at a more profitable stage without us as the middlemen, that's good. Mm -hmm. um, and then that sets us up to then bring in the next cohort of farmers that we can mm -hmm. help scale up to that degree. Mm -hmm. um, so we're always thinking about the evolution of our supply chain in that way and hoping that, you know, there's that kind of conveyor belt of success that our farm partners aren't plateauing because it profits us. Mm. Oh yeah. And can you talk a bit about your new farm worker fund? Yes, we can. Um, so we were able to, you know, we it goes back to 2019. It started with, I really wanted to see how we could impact our farm workers because even when the farm partner and, and the, the landowner is making, you know, four to six to 10 X the commodity price, it's a little bit imaginary and not, you know, fair to assume that that's trickling down to the farm worker level. And I think, um, 
there can be conversations about unions and the, the worth of kind of organizing um, with at the farm worker level. Um, and I, there's a good and bad there. But I think we wanted to take ownership of that earlier rather than later and say, one, let's deeply understand the, the reality and set baseline for how our farm workers within our supply chain are doing. Um, and that's been a lot of the past couple of years, specifically the past three months, where we conducted this really rigorous research um, and surveying across all of our farm workers in our supply chain. And what we learned was often alarming. You know, like you can have a values aligned farmer who's growing regeneratively, doing beautiful work, but ultimately there is prejudice and there is inequality in how they then deal with their workers. And so then our work is how do we sensitively, gently, carefully in holding hands with everybody in, you know, affected, um, shift what equity can look like at the farm worker level um, and do it in a way that's really involving the workers and taking their needs into account and making sure they feel heard rather than the classic like let's just give them the things we think they need when we don't know anything um and that's often the charity model so the stage one of the farm worker fund which we were able to raise twenty four thousand dollars for last year which is really cool um as a portion, so as as um, I believe fifteen percent of our Q four revenue um, was how we came up with that twenty four k number. Um, so it wasn't money that was donated; it's money that we pulled out of our PL towards this work. And so phase one was um, information gathering, and we've now identified three of our farm partners as the pilots. And so we're going to build out. And there, there's an email coming into Diaspora inboxes in two weeks um, with an update of both the short-term and long-term action items that'll happen on these three pilot farms um, that are very much things that the workers are wanting and needing so that they can be you know, happier and um, in a more a safe economic and just financial position as, as farm workers. Is food access one of those things that you found? No, um, I think that's like a tertiary thing. Um, you know, I think largely access to food on farm is okay. Sure. Is there room for improvement in diets? Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's not foremost. I think the biggest one has been, um, access to toilets because Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the, the traditional way was just go outside. Mm -hmm. Um, you're on the farm, just use the bathroom. Um, but I think really prioritizing toilets across all of our farms for workers. Um, it sounds basic, but it's not the norm on most South Asian farms. So, you know, I think before anybody listens to that and is like, how can you imagine like your coconut sugar, your, um, coconut oil, like most of the products that are sourced from Asia on in any of our pantries, no matter what fair for life, whatever they have on them Mm -hmm. are coming from farms that don't have access to toilets. Um, To me, it it sounds like, oh, that's a concrete thing. That's something where you could actually have an effect. It's so straightforward to build some Mm -hmm. bathrooms. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you have some background in farming, right? It precedes your work with Diaspora. Can you talk a little bit about how that might have informed building connections with farmers that you interact with? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a privileged, um, background where, um, when I was in high school and college, I needed work study roles and, um, was able to, uh, work on organic farms, um, kind of in exchange and loved it. Just grew, you know, I'm a Mumbai girl who grew up in the city. I very much thought the vegetables grow at the market. Um, I had no conception of how vegetables grow. Um, and it, it became sort of the most like beautiful, exciting thing for me as a young person to to realize um, very late in life that a seed was responsible um, for determining, you know, how a plant grows. And I think when I would visit our our sourcing partner, our farm partners in our now spice supply chain, initially they would, you know, look at me and be like, this is city kid kind of speaks with a funny accent, wears jumpsuits, like where did she come from? Um, and then within minutes, I'm able to bond with them about mulching and about crop con- like rotation and, you know, really get in a nerdy with them and then mm. actually start to use those initial visits to farms to connect farmers to each other and say, oh, when I was visiting the cardamom farm, I saw this really cool drying technique that, hey, you are a pepper farmer. You should totally talk to him about and, mm. and build those connections amongst our farm partners that I think helped them trust me and be like, oh, she's not like, you know, a city kid who doesn't know what she's talking about. She's listening um, and mm. she's done this before and like knows a thing or two about regenerative agriculture. Um, and I, I think the most exciting thing has been to realize that even when the concepts are the same, what works in different microclimates is so different and varied. Mm. Um, and the fertilizer that's being, that's being made on farm that's super successful in one area um, could totally bomb in another with another Mm. spice. Um, And it's about working with the farmers and listening to them to figure out what they tweak to make it work for them. And do you, are you still doing most of that work solo or do you have a team of people? I'm not anymore. No, as of um, exactly a year ago, last week, um, we now have Komod, who is an incredible sourcing manager and comes with a, or a decade of sourcing experience really mm-hmm. to this job. And she has brought um, so much rigor and technical knowledge um, and just like attention to the job. Like it used to be my heart, but it was not something, you know, 250 farmers had my phone number and were WhatsApping mm. me at all hours of night, day, morning, evening. Um, and I think that that had to be transferred over to another human and eventually a team where we'll have a sourcing team. Do you still work with the Spice Institute that helped you get started? A little bit, not as much. Um, we love them. They're, they're great. They're doing good work. But, but there are a bunch of scientific nerds who's primary funding is the whims of the federal government. Mm. Um, whereas that's not what motivates us. Um, so I think, you know, in a way we outgrew them. Um, we still connect with them and, you know, hang out with them when need be, but it's not, um, it's not as close of a relationship anymore. Mm-hmm. Diaspora began as a direct to consumer company. How does wholesaling fit into your plan and how will it affect how you communicate about your company and products? We are launching a really big rebrand um, on June 1st. Um, and it's it's really to say that, you know, our packaging initially was about working on the internet. Um, and it now needs to be about working on the internet and working in your kitchen and working in the grocery store and working in, in chef's kitchens. Um, it needs to work in a lot more formats than it used to. So 
we're really excited about, about the packaging redo. It'll be, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and it also just unlocks a better price point. It, It unlocks a lot for us. What I always come back to is what is the work? What is the work of why I started the company and the work of why we exist as a company? It's to serve our farm partners. Currently, our farm partners are growing really quickly. And um, unless we grow who we're selling to really quickly, we're not going to be buying as much as they are producing. Um, so that's where grocery comes in. And that's where we go from being a direct-to-consumer company to saying, we want to be where you are shopping for groceries um, so that we can buy more from our farm partners. So if anybody listening to this has a store, a grocery store that they want us in, like, come find us. We're, we're officially ready for that. And it's taken a long time. It's taken almost six years to be ready for it, but, but we're there. And you mentioned before we started uh, a diaspora store. <laughs> yes, that is the that is the dream. And I think, you know, 2023 is the year of grocery. And inshallah, fingers crossed, all of the above, 2024 is the year of having um, two really sweet, like, jewel boxy diaspora stores where people can come experience and smell. Um, and until then, doing lots more pop-ups. We did one mm-hmm. in New York for the holidays, and it was it was so special um, to have people open jars and just see their eyes light up and be like, oh, this is what a spice is supposed to taste like. This is what it's supposed to feel like. Um, and realizing that that's that's what we have to do over and over and over again to really convince people of the work that we're doing is have that eyes light up moment, moment as often as or frequently as possible. Do you know where those are going to be? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's okay um, if you can't say. Tentatively, they're going to be in New York and the Bay Area, but a lot mm. could change between now and next year. Yeah, of course. Cool. Well, I also hear you're working on a cookbook. We are. What can you tell us about that? We can. So we're, Asha, who's our incredible recipe editor, she and I are actually prepping for um, four months of travel to visit 25 of our farm partners um, because the cookbook is about them. And it's about saying, you know, yes, we have tons of recipes on our website that are delicious and about me and Asha and how we like to cook. But the heart of our work is saying this saffron that you, you know, know and love, this is how our farm partner grows it. And this actually knowing how they cook with it and like the, the mere family cooks with it, um, will give you a much deeper, exciting connection to this spice than ever before. Yeah. So that it will be on the road. We'll be collecting a lot of recipes and then we'll be trying to transform that into a book that gives people, you know, a, a deep dive, but also a very highly cookable deep dive into regional South Asian cooking. Mm. Exciting. Well, you know, we love print around here, so maybe we'll have to reconnect when that happens. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I loved this. We've been listening to Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora Co. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.